Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach. I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia called Calvary 316. I hope you stay with me over the next hour as we do something really, really fun. As a matter of fact, I have been really geeked up about the prospects of doing this for some time. And so I want to just kind of cut right to the chase and welcome back to the show. This is his second appearance. Uh, pastor David Guzik, welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. Hi, Zach. I'm glad to be with you here today. So you've been doing something recently. As a matter of fact, I think you've just started doing this as of late. You've been doing a Q&A via, what is it, YouTube Live or YouTube, YouTube Video? YouTube Live. That's, that's correct. YouTube Live. Uh, Tell the audience what you're doing and how they can, how they can check that out. Well, um, there's some guys around me who have encouraged me to do this for some time, and so I finally decided to take them up on it and to give the effort forth to just put myself out there on a YouTube Live channel. If people want to find my YouTube Live channel, they can search for David Guzik on YouTube and they'll find it. Otherwise, they can just go to EnduringWord.com slash live, and uh, that'll lead them directly to it as well. And uh, usually what I'll do is I'll share a short you know, thought from the Word of God and then answer questions that people have sent in via social media or email. And I'm just sort of beginning with this, but I'm enjoying it, and uh, I hope to be able to do this with some kind of regularity. I'm kind of looking forward to do it maybe once a week on that YouTube channel. I uh, I follow you through Twitter and some of your other platforms, and um, did you end up with some type of a controversy around Good Friday and Easter? Did you end up with a troll? What happened? It wasn't a troll. Really, what just struck me was that uh, just kind of browsing through my social media, and there's a fellow that I follow uh, for his uh, insights about baseball. Zach and I, you and I, we're big baseball fans, and so I, I follow That's a right. couple guys just for what they have to say about baseball. And, and this guy, uh, he retweeted something from some somebody else having to do with sort of what he considered to be ridiculous that Christians called the Friday of Jesus's crucifixion Good Friday. And this man who wrote the tweet seemed completely mystified by that idea. Well, I, I just wanted to post a little something that um, would explain why it is that we as Christians, why we call it Good Friday and what's so good about it. And I, I'm trying to just kind of for myself think about that a little bit more maybe, uh, about things that I may see uh, out there in the world that people talk about that maybe I'd have something to say about it. And when I think to, I'll throw up a quick YouTube video about it. You know, there is um, a climate um, right now as it pertains to social media that causes a lot of people to be fearful to engage um, in that type of a platform. And yet I find it so encouraging uh, that you're taking the opposite approach. You're kind of diving in headfirst, embracing it, and uh, and seeing what the Lord will do through it. Now, what, what I think is cool is quarterly... Uh, every couple months, you've agreed to be a guest on our show to kind of do the same thing, uh, answer questions um, that our audience um, have been grappling with. And so we have a mechanism set up on outlawradio.org that people can submit questions. And so if you're listening, what we're doing today is David is our guest, and we're going to be doing a Q&A. These are your questions. And, uh, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun uh, getting to as many of them as we can in today's episode. So are you ready, David? I am. But Zach, I just want to make it clear. I'm not going to be the only one to answer these questions. I mean, I, I want to hear what you have to say about a lot of these things as well. 
Well, I don't know why anyone in their right mind would care what I have to say about any of these theological questions when you have the scholar, the renowned scholar, David Guzik, who can answer them. But I think we're going to have fun. Now, the first one's a doozy. The first one is uh, is loaded right from the beginning, and um, and and I think that the dialogue will will be will be awesome. But I'm just going to go for it. Uh, one person wrote in because women aren't to take biblical authority over men aka not be pastors is it biblical for a woman to write commentaries on the bible not topical fluff but interpretive doctrine on scripture for publication what are your thoughts well now that's a great question um because i do believe in the principle that's stated in first timothy chapter two uh specifically at verse um, 12, where Paul says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And my understanding of that passage is that when Paul says to teach or to have authority, he's not talking about two separate things, but he's talking about instead something that's the same thing somebody taking teaching authority over another person, especially in the context of a congregation. That's one of the things we have to remember about Paul's commands regarding the relationship between men and women, both in 1 Timothy and also in 1 Corinthians, that he's dealing with it in terms of the congregation. Um, and, And so in that sense, in the local congregation, God says he does not want women to have these positions of teaching authority over men. Now, what I've just stated to you, uh, Zach, that, that's a controversial statement among some. I don't consider it to be particularly controversial, but nevertheless, uh, be it as it may, I, I believe it's important for us to understand just that exact principle. Now, a very legitimate question comes up. Are there avenues in which women may teach? And and somebody would say that a commentary is just a written form of teaching that is outside of a congregational context that isn't necessarily taking authority over men. And I think that's a legitimate question that people can debate. I'll give it to you, something very personal. Zach, in my studies, especially the Old Testament, there's a woman commentator on some books of the Old Testament. I think she's a pretty good commentator. Her name is Joyce Baldwin, and she's in that Tyndale uh, series of commentaries throughout the Old Testament. And I think she's written some really good commentaries. But because it's not done in the context of a congregation, I don't have uh, the sense that she's taking teaching authority over me as I read her commentary study. She, she's giving her insights to the text. Um, I, I'm the one still as the pastor, as the teacher, who has the ability to say, well, is this something good that Baldwin says, or is it not? My sense for myself is that I don't regard it as her taking teaching authority over me. That, that, that to me, is the issue at hand. And so um, I think there's reason and room for Christians to have some disagreement over this. But I think that the critical issue is teaching authority in the congregation. And so if a commentary would be perceived to be outside of that, I would allow it. Um, I I think it's okay, but I understand why some other people might disagree. Well, your answer uh, actually segues to another question uh, almost perfectly. I I joke around when I'm teaching 
Um, I like to quote David Guzik quoting Charles Spurgeon. Uh, what's wonderful about your commentaries is that I don't I don't even have to read Charles Spurgeon because you've already data mined everything he's ever written and pulled out the gems uh, that are always posted at EnduringWord.com. You quote a lot of older preachers. It seems to be, if anyone's familiar um, with your commentaries, uh, something that, that, that strikes a chord with you. Uh, I mentioned Charles Spurgeon. You mentioned another. Um, what are some of your favorite um, older Bible commentators, and why do you like them? Well, if you're talking about older, you know, maybe Charles Spurgeon's time and before, there, there's a group of guys that I've come to just kind of get to know over the years that I really appreciate. There's a few go-to guys that pretty much whenever I'm teaching through a passage of Scripture, I'm going to consult what they have to say. I, I like a guy named Adam Clark uh, from the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, I like a guy named John Trapp. He was a Puritan who wrote in the 1600s. I like a guy named Matthew Poole, who was from about the same time as uh, John Trapp, maybe just a little bit later. So uh, Poole, Clark, and Trapp are three guys that I read a lot of. Um, a little bit more recent are guys like G. Campbell Morgan and F.B. Meyer, but they would be in that era after the time of Charles Spurgeon, who was that great preacher of Victorian England. So those are three guys that I recommend. And Zach, let me tell you, a, a guy that I really don't read much of um, because I find him just really hard to get through. He has some good points, but he takes a long time to get there, is Matthew Henry. <laughs> I, just, yes, I just don't read a lot of Matthew Henry. I, I know some people are extremely uh, helped by Matthew Henry, but to me, I've just kind of felt that there's always so much to dig through before I get to a gem that uh, I haven't really been in that much to Matthew Henry. What are your thoughts about the different translations that pull from newer manuscripts versus the older? Uh, I, what comes to mind would be like the New Living Translation or the ESV, uh, especially when, and this, this questioner asked, they leave out portions of Scripture. Uh, does it really matter whether it's the Old King James, New King James, ESV, New Living, uh, the the NIV? What's your, what's your thoughts about the different translations of Scripture? Well, this is a great question, and it's kind of a complicated question, because let's, let's leave aside bad translations. And I mean translations or paraphrases that are done by the cults. I mean, I'm thinking of things like the New World Translation by the Jehovah's Witnesses and such like that. Leaving aside some that are obviously bad translations— Zach, let me be very upfront with you and all your listeners. The best translation of the Bible is the one you will actually read. <laughs> Amen we, to we that. Can, Amen. We, can, we can get all fine in our points about better and, and worse translations, and I believe there are better and worse translations. I have my preferred translations, but I'll tell you, um, the best translation of the Bible is the one you're actually going to read. And so that, that's where I want to start off with. Now, considering the relative merits of translations, there's different um, families, if we could use that term, of manuscripts behind different translations. Most modern translations depend on a family of manuscripts that includes the oldest existing manuscripts, but there's not as many manuscripts in that particular family. 
Then there's another family of ancient biblical New Testament manuscripts, which don't have the oldest manuscripts, but there's more of them. And here's kind of the problem for the from a translation standpoint. Accuracy in translation is come at by both figuring out which manuscripts are the oldest, by figuring that the older it is, the more accurate it is, although that's not always the case. And then the second aspect is by figuring out uh, which has the most manuscripts to recommend it, because the more manuscripts there are, the more you can cross-check between them and filter out errors that way. And so um, my preferred translation, the translation that I use in all my commentary work, is the New King James translation. I don't believe it's a perfect translation, but I really like it, and especially I like the poetic flair that it has. I think it's important that the Bible be memorable to us and that it has a bit of a poetic impact to us. For my own personal taste in my own ministry, the New King James Version does that best of the translation. Now, the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, is a popular translation today, and I see why it's popular. One of the things that interests me about the ESV is how similar it is to the New King James. Matter of fact, it's similar enough that I don't feel like I need to abandon the New King James. Uh, I'm just happy keeping where I'm at with it. A, a great translation that I recommend to newer believers or people who uh, maybe just want something a little simpler is the New Living Translation, the NLT. I, I think that that's a pretty good translation, and it does make the Scripture simple. And on many points, I read the New Living Translation, and I say, man, that's great. That, that that nailed the sense of that particular passage. But I want to get That's, back to the point I've yeah. made before. The best Bible translation is the one you'll read. Uh, if a Christian wants to argue with me about what the best translation is, but they're not reading their Bible, it kind of falls on deaf ears on my part. Uh, read your Bible, and, um, and we can talk about the relevant merits of translations from there on. That's the truth. If you're the listening audience, we want to hear from you. Uh, our Twitter handle is at radio underscore outlaw. And so if as you're listening to this episode, questions come to your mind, you can hit us up on social media or our website, outlawradio.org. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. More with the Outlaw Radio Show. Hi, my name is David Guzik, and I'm a friend of Zach and the entire team at Outlaw Radio. One of the things I like most about Outlaw Radio is Zach's desire to challenge Christians to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on their own. The sad reality is too many Christians don't know what they believe, yet alone why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to Outlaw Radio tackling the tough topics you might not hear at church on Sundays, their desire is to equip inspire and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this process, Zach wanted me to let you all know of two free resources essential for any serious Bible student. Aside from my full Bible commentary available at EnduringWord.com, the resources you can access at BlueLetterBible.org will truly transform the way you study the Bible. Aside from their treasure trove of free commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it easy to dive into the original languages behind a biblical text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture, 
check out EnduringWord.com as well as BlueLetterBible.org. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm joined by Pastor David Guzik. He is with us answering your questions about theology. And, uh, and I want to I set some time aside here to address a big one. And David, if you'd bear with me, the question that was submitted is a little lengthy. And so um, this person writes in, Hi, Pastor Guzik. First, let me thank you for your Blue Letter Bible study guides, which I use frequently when preparing for my Bible studies. My question has to do with election. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Just as he chose us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then in Ephesians 1, 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in Romans 8, Paul tells us, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. My question is, to those whom he calls, is there a choice? Specifically, more specifically, can they reject his call? Can they choose to say no? I think that's a great question. It, It opens up a lot of different things to discuss. Well, I think it's a great question. First of all, I'm very grateful that this person has used my commentary and uh, Bible resources on Blue Letter Bible. Those Blue Letter Bible guys are great, and I'm, I'm really happy with the work that they do for the kingdom. But secondly, let me say they, they are dealing with a fantastic question. I, I would just need to be able to know how to answer. Are we answering in terms of a theological abstraction or we are, are we answering in terms of how a human being experiences it? So I'll tell you this, Zach. According to how a person experiences, absolutely they can say yes or no. Absolutely a person uh, can either decide to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord. They can choose to put their trust on the person and work of Jesus, in particular what he did for them on the cross. They can choose to do it or not choose to do it. And that's a very important principle to retain, that even though the Bible so wonderfully speaks of this principle of election, Zach, I don't know about you, but I I believe in God's election. I believe that God chooses. I believe that God has a plan. I believe that he has an eternal outworking thing that, that he invites us to be a part of. But at the same time, I believe that we as human beings have a real choice. You know, sometimes when we get into this discussion, um, people like to frame the um, opposing viewpoints as being predestination or election against free will. And Zach, I kind of have a little problem with the phrasing of that because there's a very legitimate argument to be made that we don't have a free will, that our will is in bondage. It's in bondage to the world the flesh, and the devil, that we're not truly free because we're fallen. So I think it's worthy to debate whether or not people have a free will, but I'll tell you what we do have, we have a real choice. And that's something for us to really understand. We have a real choice whether or not to accept or reject Jesus Christ. And um, the fact of God's election, and I'll I'll admit this has to do somewhat with the realm of mystery, somewhat with things we don't fully understand, but God's eternal 
election does not violate my real choice. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, I'm teaching presently through the Gospel of John. I'm not very far through it, um, but I was struck by a passage right in the beginning in John chapter 1, uh, verse 43, where we read that the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And, and then just two verses later, we're told that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, and, and, he, and, he, and he writes concerning Jesus. And, and I just think it's, it's so interesting that from Philip's earthly vantage point, um, he found Jesus. But from yeah. heaven's vantage point, it was clear that Jesus had found him. And, yes. um, and that it's really not that complicated, that both, Scripture attests both. Philip's you know, saying, we have found him, but also that Jesus found Philip. And I don't think the two have to be in conflict with one another. No, and I understand the tendency that we kind of have. We, we kind of want to get a resolution. Come on, which is it? Is it one or the other? But I think we can see in a very important and really precious kind of way, um, God has both of us for us, both of them for amen, us. Am, amen. The next question um, uh, comes as follows. <clears throat> Many bookworms keep a dictionary nearby for reference or clarification when they come across a word or phrase they do not understand. Many Bible readers keep the Enduring Word website handy when studying the Bible. What extra biblical books does David use or used often in the past when preparing a message, uh, things that might pertain to culture or sociology, etc.? Um, aside from some of the older scholars um, and, and commentators, uh, is there anybody uh, new, fresh, contemporary uh, that you that you are either listening to or reading through? Well, I, I have to be, um, I'm just going to be very transparent. I, I guess the word I should be using, Zach, is authentic. I'm going to be very authentic with you right here. Um, I don't read a lot of contemporary guys. And, and I feel a little um, cautious in saying that to you because I, I don't want to act for a moment that nobody should be reading the contemporary guys or that there's not some contemporary guys out there that have worthwhile and helpful things to say. I, I believe there are, and I'm, I'm grateful for them. Nevertheless, my focus uh, really has been on older authors. And I sort of leave my analysis of where the culture's at and where um, the society's at, just to my own observation and the feedback that I get into everyday life, but I, I leave the real scholarly analysis of that really for others, and that's just not a point of my own focus. So I, I certainly don't say that, um, I hope, with any sense of pride or arrogance, but, but I'm not diving deep into those waters of um, where's the contemporary culture at and uh, how, how can I understand that through modern authors. This is a question that comes literally from... I say literally, not literally, but I mean, this is, this is right field. Um, do you think it's okay for a Christian family to participate in an Easter egg hunt? You know, we are coming off of the Easter season, and I guess this is a relevant topic uh, for this particular household, but what are your thoughts about, you know, we, we understand that there are pagan origins uh, to a lot of these, these the holidays that we celebrate, um, and then we've kind of 
Christianized them, uh, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. What, what's your thoughts about it all? Well, I'll give you my perspective from my research, from my study. I would not say that Easter or Resurrection Sunday, whichever term you want to use, I would not say that it has a pagan origin. I believe it has pagan associations from times in the past, but not pagan origins. And to me, that's a pretty big distinction right there. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Now, I think it's up to each individual Christian to determine in their own conscience whether um, some associations are harmless or harmful. And I think this is an area of Christian liberty where I can exercise my own sense of what's right and wrong, and somebody else informed by the Holy Spirit can exercise what they believe to be right or wrong in a particular situation. I got to say for myself, uh, at the Guzik home in our back garden uh, after the Sunday services on Resurrection Sunday, uh, there was in fact a Easter egg hunt for uh, candy hidden in plastic eggs around the back garden. And uh, I don't think we had any problem with it at all. And it seemed to us to be um, rather just a thing of fun and to make it pleasant for the children. But if somebody were to come to me and say, David, I think that that's a compromising association, I would say that I would never do that. Then, then I would say, well, brother or sister, I want to affirm you in your own conscience before God. Uh, let's agree to disagree, but let's act according to our own conscience. Do do you hold the same perspective as it as it pertains to Christmas? Yes, yes. Um, I I do think obviously that the recognition of Jesus's resurrection and Resurrection Sunday, if you will, is obviously much more prominent in the scriptures than any commemoration of his birth. But the same general attitude. Uh, I would I would agree with. Look, I, I've known a few Christians who felt that they were honor bound before God to not recognize Christmas, and I, I wouldn't try to persuade them otherwise. Um, I believe that because our society so recognizes these holidays, it gives us a remarkable open door that we as Christians should be very proactive in taking advantage of just as a way to reach our society. But if somebody felt that it was more honoring to God for them, then um, I-, I won't dispute it with them. Zach, I- I'm coming back to a fresh understanding in my own life of Christian liberty, how good, Amen. how important that is. And yes. um, I, I want to have a greater understanding of that and appreciation of that liberty and responsibility And those are two things that I I think go hand in hand in the Christian life. Well, we're coming up against a hard break, but I just want to encourage the audience to check out Pastor David's website, which is EnduringWord.com. And then you can also uh, search his name, YouTube, for his kind of weekly live Q&A. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the Outlaw Radio Show. I don't know about you, but those were some great questions. Which translation of the Bible is one that we should use? I love David's answer. The one that you're going to read. You know, reading God's word is what's important. Uh, We do encourage you to stay with us as Zach will continue this insightful Q&A session with Pastor David Guzik.
Now, here's Pastor Zach Adams and Pastor David Guzik with a special Q&A edition of the Outlaw Radio Show. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm joined by Pastor David Guzik, who is answering your questions. David, the next question is, what are your thoughts about the new trend of satellite churches? Wow. I have mixed (laughs) feelings about the trend of satellite churches. On the one hand, the concept of the satellite church as just being another way for a church to have an overflow room. You know, many churches, uh, if they can't fit everybody in their congregation in the sanctuary, which, by the way, um, Zach, I want you to know, I've never had that particular problem, but I know other guys have. (laughs) Nor have have I. Maybe that's a problem awaiting us sometime in the future. Yes. But it, sometime. It, it, you know, the sanctuary can't hold everybody, so you, you put some people into a fellowship hall or some adjacent room that's fed by video. And the idea of the extension campus or the satellite campus being just another way to do that, okay, I kind of get that concept, and uh, I, okay, I can see that. But there's a caution that I have about it, and that is, of course, the need to be raising up new pastors and teachers who can do the work for themselves. And and a lot of times they'll get raised up by going out and, and doing things. I think in the big picture, the idea of the satellite camps, it, it may change and have validity for a season. Um, but I, I wonder how it's going to work out in the long run. And, and I don't want it to take away from our real call together as believers to um, to raise up new men who can teach and preach for us to pass on to faithful men that which we've received. You know, I have I have a lot of conflict, internal conflict about satellite churches as well. And and this is coming as a millennial. Um, I don't think the trend's gonna last. As a matter of fact, I think the evidence exists right now that that the trend is very short lived. I mean you've got some of the the largest satellite conglomerates that are are in the process of of spinning them off to being their own churches. I think of, of what Matt Chandler's doing um, with the Village Church, and and they they had all these campuses, and now they're letting them know uh, you're you're on your own because there's something that's robbed about um, the local community and and the role of of the pastor, not just being the teacher, but also involved in, in people's lives and. I just think it's big box Christianity, and I think the trend, personally speaking, is going away. Uh, people people want to identify. People want to connect. And um, um, so I think do, we were just too busy satellite, building our own kingdom. Yeah, do you think that the satellite campus is just kind of maybe one of the last expressions of the big box form of doing church? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at all, like Pew Research has done some studies about millennials, and, and one of the one of the predominant characteristics is that millennials long for things that are authentic. Um, we would prefer the local, you know, coffee shop, mom and pop co- coffee shop, as opposed to, you know, Starbucks. You know, millennials prefer, um, you know, farm table type eating experience or dining experiences versus chain restaurants. Uh, there is, in a world that, that has become so over-commercialized and to a large extent superficial, um, I think we have a new generation that longs for, 
for things that are authentic. And in a satellite church is as far from authentic, um, I think it's possible. So, so specifically to your question, I, I really do. I think we're gonna we're gonna look back on this particular phase uh, thirty years from now and just scratch our heads and think, you know, what in the world uh, were we doing? I I've heard it stated, um, but I think it bears repeating. Imagine if Pastor Chuck, you know, had had the technology available to him. Um, where instead of sending Greg Laurie to Riverside, he could have just put up a video screen or Mike McIntosh in San Diego. Yeah, that's a, that's know. a frightening thought, isn't it? I mean, how many how many preachers the church would have been robbed of? You know, local communities. I don't I don't know. I I do think I, I do think the trend's going away, and um, and it was short sighted to begin with. Um, this does segue to a great question, though. Another another great question. How do you think? church historians will write about this age of the church. I know you are um, a historian in your own right. Um, what do you think about the evaluation of of this time period of church history? Well, Zach, earlier in the program you referred to me as a scholar, and now you're calling <laughs> me a historian. I, Come on, man. I, I, I just want to have complete authenticity before your listening audience, um, I'm not a scholar in the formal sense of the term, and I'm not a historian in the formal sense of the term, but but I am a student of these things, and I'm somebody who has read and thought about them, and uh, so whatever I can add, I, I'd like to add to the idea. I, I just think that when you take a look at where the world is Real at quick, today- I have to inter- I have to interrupt you. I have to okay. interrupt you. All right, go point. right ahead. Um, a- anyone that- that claims to be a scholar you should run from like if you introduced yourself as my name is david guzik scholar and church historian um everyone should be suspect but when you have a friend and um and someone that i mean i consider you to be one of my pastors uh referring to you that way um i'm not the only one that sees you uh, as a scholar and a historian, and so take it with a, a a measure of humility. Don't sell yourself short to it. I'm glad you don't call yourself that, but but I'll continue to do so. Well, you're you're very kind, Zach. Thank you. And let me tell now, you, back to the to, question. To answer your back question, question. Yes, I think that what we'll see, you know, if the Lord tarries a hundred years, hundred and fifty years from now, when they look back on this period. In a lot of ways, they'll look on it just like any other period in church history, a a era in which the church got some things really right and did well, and then in other things they were blind to, and they were blind to some of their own glaring sins. I mean, it really is the conceit of our present age that we are so right, and many of our forefathers in the faith had it wrong in so many ways. And I, I do see maybe, generally speaking, I don't want to be too specific, but just in general, maybe just a touch of arrogance in the church today, thinking that we, we've got it right and uh, there was such hypocrisy in the past that now we're bravely correcting. I think we got enough of that hypocrisy right here, right now, but we're blind to it. We have our own blind spots in our own present age. I think that one thing that historians will take a look at and see that is very different about our present age is the rapid nature of change in the present age. 
if you think about it, life experience in the culture and um, just in a person's Christian experience, uh, for a long time, things didn't change very radically. Uh, the person's Christian and cultural experience would be very similar to what their father's and grandfather and great-grandfather's was. We, we can't say that today. Uh, change has always been happening among the people of God, but today it happens with a speed, with a, a rapid nature that I think is truly remarkable in a historical context. You know, one of the other things that, that really strikes me about the present age is, I mean, even 40 years ago, or, or I'll go back, man, 15, when I was in Bible college, to study the Bible required a lot of work. I mean, you had to have your Strong's concordance. I mean, I mean, the amount of books you needed to do a word study or a word search uh, was was insane. And yet today, uh, with websites like Blue Letter Bible, um, with just a few clicks, I mean, we had the, the world's information on the internet and the ability to study the Bible um, today um, is so much different and so much... Um, the, the ease in which it's been presented today, um, I think, is is really revolutionary when you place that in context to the 2,000 years of church history we have, um, that we can study the Bible the way that we do. And then the irony is how few churches actually then study the Bible. Um, the dichotomy with that, um, I, f- I find to be to be striking. Well, um, it is. And, and look, I, I know we're going to come up to a break pretty soon. When we come back from the break, can I ask you a question about the Bible and the modern church? Because I think it's a very interesting thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Well, that is, you could not have asked for a better tease. Please don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a quick break for more of the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the missions of Outlaw Radio is to bring your attention to ministry resources that will benefit your personal study of the Bible and spiritual growth. With this in mind, we want you to check out Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Not only is their vision to help the thinker believe, but they exist to help the believer think. To accomplish both of these aims, their website, rzim.org, is filled with tons of free resources aimed at not only answering your own difficult questions, but with the intention of providing the necessary tools to defend your faith in an ever-growing hostile world. Once again, you can learn more about Ravi Zacharias International Ministries by visiting rzim.org. That's rzim.org. Hi, this is David Guzik. You're listening to Outlaw Radio, and I'm here together with my good friend, Zach Adams, and we're answering questions that have been submitted by listeners. And uh, Zach, where are we at right now in our discussion? Well, you left us off with a bit of a tease that you were going to ask me a question, um, and I have absolutely no idea what that question is going to be, and so I'm going to hand the floor back to you. Uh, what is, what, what's the thing that's been, that you've been chewing on? Zach, I want to ask you a question. By your perception and research, do you think Christians read their Bibles as much today as they did 20 or 30 years ago? The challenge to that is 20 or 30 years ago, I was a middle schooler entering my high school years. So for me, the answer is I, I'm absolutely more 
in my Bible today than I was as a middle schooler or a high school student. Well, a, a I'm not asking um, particular about your habits because, well, I mean, not only is the difference an age difference for you, but you're also a pastor. I'm asking for the person in the pew. And I understand I'm just kind of asking for your perception of this, but I'm, I'm interested in what your perception is. You know, my perception, my perception would be this. I think the answer is yes and no. Today, the way that we have scripture delivered to us, that the mechanism is is radically different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. To get into the scriptures 20 or 30 years ago, uh, you actually had to carry around a physical book, keep it in your car, carry it with you to school, open it up on your break. Uh, but today, because you've got the entire Word of God on your tablet or your phone, you have devotional programs. Um, I think the, the the mechanism of delivery for God's word is probably way more streamlined, and thus people, I think, probably are consuming more today than they were 20 or 30 years ago. But my guess is that it's not as deep as it was 20 or 30 years ago, um, that we're getting um, nuggets, devotionettes, um, you know, you go to Facebook, you'll get, I mean, my Facebook feed is filled with scripture from people that are are posting memes that have a verse referenced. Um, I think we're around scripture a lot, but uh, and, and more so than before, but I don't think we're diving into it like like we would if you're carrying a book around and you're opening up. That make any sense? It, it does make sense because I think the potential for us to be better Bible readers is out there, but I think that's a potential that's not being fulfilled. And I think for a lot of the reasons that you talked about, and this is something sort of kind of uh, striking my interest. Now, I want to do a little bit more development on this, maybe speak about it some other time, because um, I've just got a real passion that Christians need to be reading their Bible, Um, not just a verse here or there, and not just listening to good preaching, which we're very grateful is out there and that people are listening to, but but they need to be reading their Bible. You know, one one of my pet peeves is the way in which we as pastors try to to lay out that exhortation, because I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, Jesus is the Word. You you want to get to know Jesus. You want to experience uh, that connection with Him, this, this, this magical thing. Dive into His Word. You're going to learn of Jesus. But I, I'll tell you, David, I absolutely cannot stand when pastors get up and really push these read your Bible in a year, I think legalistic guilt trips. Um, you can't have a program to cause someone to read their Bible more because then it becomes a job. It becomes a chore to get people to read the scriptures. Man, it's grace. It's the understanding of grace. Like reading your Bible shouldn't be a chore. It should be the most exciting part of your day. And um, and and it just it it bothers me personally when. When we end up in in a good in the good heart to try to encourage people to to do it more, we end up taking a more legalistic approach using law and rules, um, than getting to the heart behind why you should be doing it. You know what I mean? Well, I, I agree with you completely. And even though I know that much good has happened in people's lives through those read the Bible in a year programs, I also know there's a flip side to it that might even be bigger than the positive side. And the negative side to it is a tremendous amount of guilt, a real sense yes. of failure, and sort of a throwing up of the hands if, if I can't do this, why read my Bible at all kind of thinking. 
Well, you get to Genesis 5, and there's a long list of names. And you're like, okay, well, I'll get through that. And then you get to Genesis 10, and there's more names. And 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 it can it can be discouraging for a lot of people when it's like, hey, engage Jesus through his word and enjoy it. I'll tell you, um, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent. Um, hey, it's your uh, radio show, Zach. Yeah, that's true. Sally Lloyd-Jones. Do you know who that is? I, I do know her. I, 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 she pops up in my Twitter feed from time to time. She has written a children's Bible that is absolutely fantastic. Um, there's a lot of, of license that she's taken to, to which stories are included, but the, the illustration is beautiful. The stories are just, are, are all Christ-centric. They're, they're, they're excellent. And one of my favorite parts of my day now is sitting with my boys before they go to bed. Uh, they have their copies. I have mine. And, and, and going through the, the Word of God together with my children. Um, and you know, that's how it should be when I get into God's word on my own, it should be exciting. It should be engaging. There should be an anticipation that God's going to do something. Um, it shouldn't be relegated to work. We've got a few more questions I want to get to. Um, Let's do some it. off the wall questions. Uh, do you believe Christians have guardian angels? Uh, yes and no. I'll give you the pa- classic uh, two-handed theologian thing on the one hand and on the <laughs> other hand. Um, the Bible says that angels are sent forth as ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. It says that in the book of Romans. And so we believe that angels, part of their commission is to serve believers. And in that sense, maybe some of the service that they do is uh, uh, guarding us, protecting us. I-, I don't think that that's a crazy thought. But the idea that each believer has one particular guardian angel, that idea is never expressed in the Bible. So in a general sense, I think we can say that we have angelic guardians, but the idea of one guardian angel for each believer, that's not detailed for us in the Bible. Rapid fire, do animals go to heaven? And I, I know that um, people giggle at that particular question. That's probably the most common question me as a pastor that I field on a week to week basis when when a loved dog or cat dies. And there's a real grief involved and that person wants to know, will I see Fluffy again? Um, I want you to take the question seriously and provide what you think to be a, an honest biblical explanation. All right, well, here's a serious answer to that question. First of all, the Bible tells us that there are animals in heaven. The Bible describes a lion in heaven, a lamb in heaven, and a horse in heaven, or at least connected with heaven. So the idea of there being animals in heaven is not foreign to the scriptures. Now, as far as an individual's particular pet or loved animal, something like that, I can give you this answer, that if heaven would not be heaven, without your dearly departed pet, then that pet will be there. If that's what it would take to truly make heaven heaven for you, uh, that that pet will be there. Now, it may very well be, and I would even say this is a likelihood, that when you get to heaven, you will be so overwhelmed with the presence and the glory, the the radiance of God on every level in the community of his great people that suddenly – as dear as your pet is now to you, 
uh, that won't matter to you in heaven. That's an entire possibility, and it just won't matter to you in heaven, but that, that's another issue together. If it would matter to you in heaven, that pet will be there, and um, I don't have any doubt about that. That's that's such a fair and tender answer. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, listen, we're we're running out of time. Man, time flew by. Uh, David, thank you so much for being on the show and doing this. I, I can't wait to do it again and can't wait for the Braves to beat up on your Dodgers. I think that'll well, happen soon. That'll be interesting when that happens. Let, let's see. I think the Braves are off to a little better start as the time of this uh, recording is being made. And Clayton Kershaw started 0-2. I think that's, that's as you mentioned, off-air evidence of the apocalypse? Uh, it's uh, it's something to be concerned of. I, we've got eschatological experts looking into that right now. <laughs> David, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome, Zach. It's a pleasure. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. If you like what you heard, I want to encourage you to do two things. First, please contact your local radio station and tell them you're thankful they're carrying Outlaw Radio in your community. The second thing I want to ask you to do is to visit our website, which is outlawradio.org. From the site, you can easily access our podcast, which is available on iTunes and Google Play. You can listen again to this episode or all of our previous episodes. You can also connect with us on Twitter, which is at radio underscore outlaw. You can send me an email at info at outlawradio.org, or you can follow us via facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. Also, don't forget... David has agreed to come on the show once a quarter and answer your questions. And so there's a form you can fill out at outlawradio.org. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.